HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. And today, uh, we're going to be talking about something that is much in the news right now. Uh, My guest is Kevin O'Reilly. Kevin helps to run the USPIRG's Right to Repair campaign. Have you all been seeing the headlines about this? Uh, Through research and advocacy, Kevin works to eliminate manufacturer-imposed restrictions on repairing medical and agricultural equipment. His work has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Market Watch, the New York Daily News, and others. Kevin lives in Boston, Massachusetts. You're a fellow New Englander. I'm in Rhode Island, uh, where he enjoys reading, cooking, and rooting on the Oakland A's from afar. You can follow him on Twitter at... Kevin underscore O'Reilly seven. And for those of you who may not be so familiar with PIRG, PIRG is a federation of independent state-based citizen-funded public interest research groups and is part of the public interest network, which operates and supports organizations committed to a shared vision of a better world and a strategic approach to social change. Um, You know, you often see that acronym PIRG or USPIRG and sort of have no idea what that means. I just thought I would like, you know, remind people that there are really good organizations out there that are looking to protect us, kind of like Consumer Reports, you know, like there's Union of Concerned Scientists. These are all really, um, you know, nonpartisan, uh, excellent organizations that work hard to keep us protected and protected. from predatory uh, things like what we're going to talk about today with Kevin O'Reilly, which is the right to repair. What is the right to repair, Kevin? And why should anyone care about that? Absolutely. Well, first of all, thanks (laughs) thanks for having me on, Katie. And yeah, Perg, we're not necessarily known for our branding, but we certainly try to make sure to protect consumers nonetheless. Um, Right to repair is about a pretty basic idea, right? When you own something, you should be able to do what you want with it. You should be able to fix it when it breaks, right? right? But as software has worked its way into everything that we use today, you know, right. your cell phone, your laptop, your refrigerator, or a farmer's tractor, uh, manufacturers have used that as a way to lock individuals out of fixing their own stuff. Also, to lock independent repairs out of fixing their own stuff. So, you know, if you've ever uh, broken your... Uh, the screen on your cell phone and tried to go into the manufacturer and have them replace it and then have you, you know, quote you some crazy number. Um, That's because they've been able to restrict the repair market so they can dictate the prices and they can also, 
you know, work to uh, try and get you to buy a new thing. Now, right. you know, we've all, as consumers, I'm sure, dealt with this to some degree, but it really has important implications for our food industry, for our ability to, you know, grow and raise crops and, and livestock that is going to end up on our dinner tables. And we've taken a hard look um, over the past few years at what this means for farmers and ranchers and the ways that manufacturers are restricting their ability to fix their tractors. And as a result, you know, restricting their ability to raise our food and to, you know, maintain the livelihoods that, that they are uh, trying to keep through, through this work. So, um, you know, it's, it's something that seems really basic. It's a common sense idea. Um, and yet there's a lot we have to do to make sure that it's actually put into practice. Now you would think, I'm going to go off on a tangent here. You'll have to get used to this. This is what I do. Um, <laughs> Love it. You would think that Republicans would really support this type of, uh, you know, organize, you know, this type of, of idea that people should be allowed to repair their own equipment. I mean, isn't that sort of like a very Republican idea that people should be in charge of their own destiny and able to repair their stuff as they see fit? And yet somehow... I don't know. The Republican uh, side of Congress doesn't seem to be hugely uh, interested in whether or not the right to repair, um, you know, gets any traction in the uh, overall community, um, not just in the agricultural community. Because as you just pointed out, cell phones are also a thing, right? You know, people break their cell phones. You can't you can't take your TV into the local TV repair guy anymore because a he doesn't exist because of this, and b same problem. The computerization, the technology is so sophisticated uh, that it's very difficult to keep a workforce up to date with what's going on. So one of the things that um, we talked about, or, you know, just before we started here was how very sophisticated, um, from a technical point of view, farm equipment has become. And um, so this is yet another sort of thing that farmers have to be on top of, uh, Talk a little bit about how the equipment, something like you would think as simple as a tractor, um, actually has a lot of sensors and um, computerized systems that help the farmer, uh, you know, plow and plant more effectively. Talk a little bit about that, how sophisticated that stuff is, because I don't think people realize that we're ta not talking about those cute things you see out in the fields and, you know, 19th century prints or whatever, you know. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, the tractors of today are definitely not your grandfather's tractor. But first of all, just to, you know, address the point you made earlier about this seeming like something that uh, Republicans should support, it yeah. is something that Republicans support. We're oh, seeing, is that right? Yeah, we're seeing bipartisan support, regardless of ideology, um, particularly in, in state legislation. So, you know, some of our bills that are uh, right to repair bills that are furthest along in places like Nebraska and Missouri um, yeah. have, you know, very conservative sponsors. And at the same really? time, you've got folks from New York and Massachusetts and California who are Democrats who are leading initiatives as well. Um, so this is definitely uh -huh. something that where we see, you know, regardless of the ideological divide, people just want to fix their stuff. But well, that is very encouraging. It is. It's it's this rare kind of issue in this moment where it hasn't been, uh, you know, completely partisan uh, politic out of uh, any chance of passage. And that's that's one thing that we're, we're trying to push forward. But um, as far as, you know, how this how modern tractors are, um, you know, much more complicated than they used to be over the past you know decade, couple decades, think tractors have gotten bigger. Um, they've gotten uh, more technical. 
Um, and we're now seeing the use of incredible amounts of you know, software and sensors and controllers and computers and all of that um, to make this machinery run. So you know, right from the get-go, when you open the door and hop in the cab of a tractor, you're going to see a touchscreen display that's going to be um, you know, giving you readouts on all sorts of information and data that might be generated. Um, and, you know, ostensibly, this is supposed to be a good thing for farmers. That means they can yeah. leverage economies of scale. They can be getting constant readouts of important data like the moisture levels in um, in their soil. Or, you know, they can use GPS to make sure that they're plowing straight lines as they're going through and prepping for planting. Mm -hmm. um, but unfortunately... Again, as I was talking about earlier, software has provided manufacturers with the opportunity to try to, you know, essentially monopolize the repair process. Um, right. So what happens today is if you have a breakdown with something like a moisture meter, right, that's giving your um, those readings on how much moisture is in your soil or, yeah. you know, something to do with the emission system. Maybe you don't have um, all of the fluid required to make sure you're in compliance with the uh uh, Clean Air Act, or even just in, in the case of one farmer, a uh, turn signal uh, that went out and nonetheless, he got a problem with it. Sometimes you don't have access to uh, the software tools required to fix this stuff. Um, right. And that means you've got to turn to your dealer. So for one, farmers are, are frustrated because they are a historically self-sufficient group of people, right? It's sure. kind of the attitude on the farm is that You'll do whatever it takes to get the job done. But in these cases, uh, they're just left throwing up their hands, calling up the dealer or, you know, putting their huge pieces of metal onto a truck bed and hauling them to uh, the nearest dealer to, to get some attention. And that's not a good option for farmers. A, it takes away no. their, you know, their kind of agency over the stuff they own. It, B, it can lead to really some high repair costs. Um, and then C, it can lead to serious delays because, you know, when it's planting season or harvesting season or haying season, mm -hmm. everybody in your area is doing the same thing and you're all out in the field and you're all breaking down at the same time. So when there's a bottleneck of everybody is going to the same dealer to get service, you can mm -hmm. face delays of hours to days to weeks to months, right? I, I spoke to... Uh, one farmer that I work with, his name's Jared Wilson, he's uh, farms out in Missouri. Um, he had a case where his John Deere fertilizer spreader had a problem with the hydraulic system. Um, he basically what that meant for Jared is that, you know, the mechanical problem happened. He gets a readout on his um, computer in the cab that says that there is a problem. It throws what's called an error code, which is basically a series of digits and maybe a couple words on what the problem is. But then um, what can happen in, in some cases is his uh, spreader went into what they call the limp mode, which basically right. means, you know, the power is reduced to the point where you can, yes, you can, you know, quote unquote, limp the uh, piece of equipment off the field to somewhere it can be uh, serviced. Right. But beyond that, you can't do any real work. So you've got to fix that problem before you can get back out there. Right. Now, Jared's a pretty industrial dude. He's the kind of guy who will figure it out. He'll if armed with the right information and the right tools, you can get to the bo um, bottom of the problem. But this was a case in which 
you know, John Deere would not sell him the hydraulic diagrams he needed to trace the problem. It wouldn't sell him the full diagnostic software Whoa. suite required to get in here. And then finally, it wouldn't sell him the software tools that are required to go in and calibrate a repair at the end of the process, which is required to put that piece of equipment back into use. Whoa. So as a result, he had to load his huge fertilizer spreader filled with you know, hundreds of pounds of fertilizer still in, um, in the, you know, in the hopper and, right. uh, ship it over to his, his dealer where it sat for 32 days before Whoa. he, um, before it was finally fixed. Right. And one of the things, one of the things you also pointed out, uh, in your report, and I just want to bring this to people's attention is that there are fewer and fewer dealerships that they're the consolidation of, the industry has meant that there are fewer places, even dealers that you can even take your thing to. So you might have to travel several hundred miles. Am I right in that? In order to get your equipment to the dealer, like they're not sending guys out to the fields to do this. I just want to, you know, clarify that whole scenario there. Cause that's, I mean, geez. Consolidation is absolutely a huge part of the problem here. Not only do you not have the choice to fix it yourself or to, um, you know, turn to an independent repair uh, mechanic right. who might be able to help you out. Um, right. In many cases, and, and what our research found is with John Deere in particular, it means that you've only got one dealership chain network in your region, right? So right. what we did is is we took a look at uh, the dealerships for John Deere, Agco, Kubota, Case IH, which are for the m main players in, in the, you know, equipment manufacturing game. And uh, we yep. found that Deere was more than twice as consolidated as any of those um, other competitors. So 82% of Whoa. their 1,300 agricultural equipment dealerships are part of a large chain with seven or more locations. And mm -hmm. what that means is that there's one John Deere dealership chain for every 12,018 American farms oh and every 5.3 million acres of American farmland, right? So the problem is, is that if you don't like your your local uh, dealer, you don't trust them, or they've just got too long of a waiting list to get your equipment um, fixed, you could ha be having to hop in the truck and drive those hundreds of miles just to find a competitor, just to find a competitive quote, just to find mm -hmm. a mechanic who you trust to do better work. And what we're seeing is, you know, Farmer repair choice was already reduced by these software repair res restrictions, but right. consolidation is just making this problem that much worse. Mm -hmm. Now, how does John Deere justify this? Is this like, do they call this intellectual property? Uh, they're afraid that their, you know, that their system is going to get ripped off by another manufacturer. I mean, what, I know I ask you this later on in the show, in the show, but I mean, what, what, how do they justify uh, what is, you know, really uh, kind of, um, I wouldn't say life and death, but certainly profit and not profit, <laughs> uh, you, right. know, you know, you uh, know, approach towards repairing equipment that obviously needs a lot more repair than the tractors of even 25 or 30 years ago. I mean, let's answer that question. And then I want to talk a little bit about what kinds of problems really are in the main here. Absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, what you'll hear from John Deere and from other manufacturers is those kind of arguments, right? Talking about intellectual property, talking about concerns about, um, you know, bypassing emissions through modification, mm -hmm. um, things like that. And, you know, the fact of the matter is, A, right, us at PERG, we are 
um, very much concerned about the environment. We are wanting to make sure that, uh, you know, in addition to protecting consumers, we're protecting their public health. So that emissions uh, idea that, you know, right to repair is about just being able to hot rod your tractor and modify it and do those <laughs> kind of things. That's that's just uh, baloney, frankly. It's, it's yeah. a case where um, the tools that would be provided through right to repair legislation have nothing to do with modifying equipment, nothing to do with um, being able to squeeze some extra horsepower out of out of your machine. It's simply about getting access to the same tools that the dealer technicians already have at a fair and reasonable price. Um, and right. then as far as intellectual property goes, right, this is another argument we often hear. Um, but for one, repair materials are not intellectual property. That's something that the courts and Congress um, have maintained over you know the decades and centuries even. Um, but in addition to that, John Deere is already providing European farmers with access to these tools. So, you know, oh, in no the way. EU, they've really? had, they, this is true and it's it's sad and it's hard to imagine that, you know, such an American <laughs> oh. iconic um, company like John Deere would be providing something to farmers in the EU and not in the U.S. Um, well, that's because the so, EU has those laws. They have right to repair laws. They've got them on the books. They've had them on the books since 2013. And, yeah. you know, that's why it's so important that we do pass some some laws, whether it's at the state level or federal level. We need to find a way to make sure that uh, manufacturers are required to provide this information because it doesn't seem like they're going to do it out of the goodness of their own hearts. Right. And unbelievable. Um, I mean, I guess it's not unbelievable. I just show you, I, despite my 65 years on the planet, I'm still blown away by these, you know, the, the human greed that we are consistently confronted with. <laughs> it is, it is and, a case you know, of profit, right? It's, you know, we've actually seen that. People. Yeah, unfortunately, right? Uh, there was actually, you know, Bloomberg reported that uh, John Deere company filing showed that repair and services um, were three to six times more profitable than the sale of original new equipment, right? So they're able to make money. They're able to lock down the market for repair. And yeah. so that's why they're going to continue to do it unless there's another um, regulation in place to make sure that they don't. Right, right. Now, one of the other things your report said that I thought was interesting was that the farmers are now, because of this problem, because of the increasing technical sophistication of the machinery itself, the computerized systems for X, Y, and Z, uh, that they are actually opting to buy older equipment that predates some of this sophisticated technology. And that has sent prices for secondhand equipment soaring as well. Um, I wondered if you could comment on that for a second, because that that seems like, you know, I mean, really a, a very sort of, I don't know what to call it, you know, like a circular problem, you know? I mean, right. Can't... The, the idea or that one would hope is that all of these innovations and new technological advances would be making farmers' operations more efficient, their yields higher, but yeah. um, really just making their lives easier. But this is a case where there's an argument against that, right? So we did a uh, survey of um, farmers alongside National Farmers Union, and we found that 77% of the farmers that we surveyed bought mm -hmm. older equipment to avoid the software and new equipment. And right. one distinction I do want to make here is it, it's not simply because these are more complex machines, right? It's not so much they're scared of, you know, joining kind of like the 21st century. Farmers oh, no. want to 
figure out a way to make this work and, and make it so that their job is easier and that they're able to oh, grow yeah. more for less and do those kind of things. But the fact of the matter is, is that being able to quickly repair your equipment is so important that if you can, and if you're stuck calling up the dealer and waiting until, um, you know, they're able to send somebody out or uh, having to haul your equipment in yourself, um, then it's just not worth it. The advancements uh, don't play out. So it's a matter right. of cost benefit and, and the cost out weigh the benefits. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty crazy, but we're seeing that, uh, you know, older equipment, decades old equipment is now catching some pretty eye raising, um, <laughs> you know, costs at, at auction. So, you know, a couple of years yeah. ago, there was a 1980 John Deere tractor. Um, so that's, you know, 42 40 years old. 40 something years, right. Right, yeah. Like Jimmy Carter was president when this thing was, was made. <laughs> um, and it sold for $43,000, um, which is, you know, almost comparable to what it sold for back in 1980. Um, wow. So that just gives you an idea that it's really kind of creating this rush on old equipment. And, you know, part of it is, you know, absolutely the fact that there are supply chain slowdowns and chip shortages and things like that. But um, repair is absolutely an important aspect of of this trend in that people need to be able to fix their stuff and they're going to find a way to, to make sure they have stuff they can fix. Right. Absolutely. Um, we're going to take a short break now for a sponsor drop. We'll be right back with Kevin O'Reilly to talk more about the right to repair and especially about uh, various suits that have just been launched. Uh, so stay tuned for that. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Okay, so, Kevin... Mm -hmm. A couple of really interesting things have happened. Um, one was listed in your uh, in your uh, report, which was uh, describing a class action suit brought against John Deere by farmers. I wanted to check in on that. And then also just this past week, uh, PERG and uh, the National Farming Union, National Farmers Union, and other farm advocacy, gr advocacy groups filed suit with the Federal Trade Commission alleging violations of the Sherman Act uh, and other antitrust uh, legislation. So tell, what's going to happen? Tell us about that. Well, you know, to start, you're seeing just a ton of action coming in the courts um, around this problem. So, right. you know, you mentioned those uh, class action suits. There's now been seven different class action lawsuits brought by farmers from all over the country, from South Dakota to Tennessee to wow. Illinois and more. Um and, you know, I think the first important point that that comes up in this case is that um, this is a problem that farmers are facing. 
you'll often hear from manufacturers and dealers and uh, you know state houses across the country as right to repair bills are considered um, mm -hmm. that this is not a problem that this legislation is a solution in search of a problem and that in reality farmers right. can fix almost everything they they want to fix but the fact that farmers are willing to go on the record to literally take deer to court because they are, you know, as the claims allege, costing farmers millions of dollars and yeah. unnecessary fees. Um, it shows you how real this problem is. Um, so, you know, these suits will, will take some time to actually develop and um, come, you know, before they actually come before the courts and any sort of decision is, is reached. But I think the fact that there were, you know, seven suits filed in a matter of seven weeks shows you that this is wow. uh, very much a problem that's coming forward. Uh, you know, the FTC suit um, or the complaint that U.S. PERG uh, filed along, International Farmers Union, uh, a handful of state farmers union, other groups like Farm Action, and then right to repair advocates like Repair, Your Repair Association, and I Fix It. Um, this is exciting, A, because in a similar way, you know, not only are we calling for legislation, kind of for that aspirational goal of achieving a law or a rule that will require manufacturers to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. um, in this complaint, we're actually alleging that John Deere is breaking the law, that they are, um, you know, by their attempts to monopolize repair, but through their attempts to, you know, tie the use of their equipment to continually going back and paying them more money, you know, you know, some might say rent seeking uh, to, to keep their right. tractors moving. Um, they are violating the Sherman Act and, you know, we don't need to get into the legal weeds, but um, what's particularly exciting about the FTC complaint is the, uh, you know, essentially the authority that the FTC has. First uh -huh. of all, they've got subpoena power, right? So they can um, require internal documents. They can, uh, you know, depose dear executives and figure out exactly what the problem is and leave no stone unturned as they try to get to the bottom of, of some of these problems and some of these confusions that happen in the back and forth between right repair advocates and opponents like manufacturers. Um, but B, you know, once they come to a conclusion, once they feel like they've reached the truth, if they uh, agree with our claims, they have the power to immediately act to make John Deere provide farmers with access to these software tools. And then also if, if Deere refuses to comply to hit them with fines to, you know, kind of apply that stick until um, the problem is solved. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's pretty exciting to see that this is another way that farmers could be winning their, their right to repair. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned early at the beginning of this answer, um, you know, if they do the right or they, you know, they will be sort of, you know, bludgeoned essentially into doing the right thing. I, I want to understand better what is the right thing. I mean, uh, you know, they can't just give out software or can they? I mean, what would, what would the farm community be happy with? What would work for them? What would they consider fair in terms of just resolving this dispute? Yeah. So, you know, what I think the farm community wants, um, you know, based on working with a lot of these folks and then what we're calling for in right to repair is access to the same tools, the same software, the same repair information that dealership technicians have and asking for it at a fair yeah. and reasonable price. Right. So by no means are we asking to for, uh, you know, dear to or their dealerships or other manufacturers to not make some 
money on uh, the distribution of parts and things like that, but they shouldn't be able to jack up the prices so that they're, you know, really um, unreachable so that yes, maybe the tools exist, but only if you're willing to pay $10,000 or whatever the price may be. Um, So what farmers want simply is just fair access to all the tools they need to fix their equipment. They want to really own the equipment that they own and be able to do the things that they want to do with, with this, with the um, equipment that's theirs. And, you know, it's, it's worth reminding folks that people have to take out mortgages on this equipment, right? Modern tractors can cost $500,000, $800,000. Like these are not cheap pieces of equipment and to put all that money down to go into that level of debt in order to, uh, you know, try and, and make a living, try and grow some food and then, be told that you got to keep paying high repair prices and and not mm-hmm. be able to do what you want with a piece of equipment. It's just crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. Um, and also to not to even just that farmers can access this, uh, this information, but also that licensed uh, dealers that are not part of the John Deere or the other, you know, industrial complex there, you know, like it, this would enable independent uh, repair people to get back into business as well, which I would think would be sort of a useful and valuable addition to any community. I mean, I know that, uh, you know, living in a small town in Rhode Island, um, you know, when I see my vacuum manufacturer, you know, my vacuum repair place go down because, uh, you know, they can't whatever, for whatever reason, um, you know, that's a real loss to the community. And it's certainly the, the case in, in any rural community. You need to have people who can fix stuff. It's like not having, not being able to use anybody except for your car dealership to fix your car, right? It's, like it's totally you- true, right? And yeah. think about, you know, a few, a few years ago, maybe a decade ago, every Main Street in America had a camera repair store um, that was local, independently owned, independently run, all those kind of things. But um, we've actually seen these go away over time as as manufacturers in the the camera industry have have taken over the repair process. And now it's hard to even find one. I think I can't remember which company it is, if it was uh, Canon or Nikon or, or who it was, but there was recently a major camera company that closed their final in-person physical repair store Um, so now you have to just ship everything in if you have a problem and and that's a problem for you know consumers it's a problem for you know local rural economies in particular you know repair jobs independent repair jobs are good jobs they're local jobs and they're jobs that can keep rural you know rural america uh, moving in a way and so you're absolutely right that it's it's important not only for farmers to be able to do this um, because in some cases there will be repairs that will be outside of their range or they just simply don't have the time to do it. So right. they deserve to have a, you know, a vibrant repair market to, you drew, drew the analogy, uh, analogy to cars. It should be the same way, right? Maybe you can mm-hmm. change your own oil, but if you've got a problem with your transmission, you should have the choice to take it to the dealer or take it to an independent mechanic. Yeah. And take it to your guy down the street that you went to high school with that, you know, knows how to do it. Right. Exactly. I mean, exactly. You know, that's how we, We've that's how many that of us grew up. Right. Exactly. And it's like, like crazy that that's going away. Um, you, your, your, your report uh, suggested that there are at least two dozen States uh, that have enacted some form of right to repair. Um, but John Tester of Montana has introduced a bill called the Agricultural Right to Repair Act. Uh, and I think, and didn't Biden sign some sort of executive order last summer about right to repair? Like, totally. 
so so without a federal piece of legislation, um, is this just going to be like a piecemeal state by state thing without maybe as much sort of tooth to the legislation or to, you know, to the local state level right to repair? Like break down for me, like the differences between those two things, whether it's a state or a federal uh, piece of legislation. Absolutely. So, you know, first of all, unfortunately, no agricultural right to repair uh, laws have been put on the books yet, right? Oh, I see. Uh, what our report speaks to is the fact that there have been dozens of states that have considered uh, right mm. to repair legislation, but the only actual right to repair law that exists is for cars. And that's why you have those ah. three choices when your stuff breaks down. Back in 2012, there was a ballot measure that got 86% of the vote in Massachusetts that mm -hmm. made um, it so that you could fix your own cars or at least have the choice to go to an independent. Um, mm -hmm. Once that bill passed, the manufacturers of cars came to the bargaining table and signed what was you know, known as a memorandum of understanding, which essentially made it so that this Massachusetts law was the law of the land. They didn't want to deal up with that kind of uh, tenuous uh, regulatory landscape where maybe there was a different law popping up in each state. So they just nipped it in the bud and adopted it across the country. Um, so to your point, right, that's one outcome we could see happening if states start to pass these bills like you know, I mentioned Nebraska, LB 543, that's um, being considered right now by the Nebraska Senate um, or in any of the other, I think we've got something like 19 states across the country that are considering some sort of right to repair legislation at the moment. Oh, um, wow. mm -hmm. If any of those pass, we think that it would make sense for manufacturers to, again, come to the bargaining table. But at the same time, we think it's really important to be pushing at every level. So you mentioned Senator Tester's Agricultural Rights Repair Act, which is a great piece of legislation. It's something um, that we hope will continue to see uh, more support build in, in Congress. Um, mm -hmm. President Biden last July uh, signed an executive order uh, on increasing competition across the economy. And right. one of the 72 points was about um, encouraging the FTC to you know, make a rule to to stop harmful repair restrictions, whether it's for tractors or cell phones or medical equipment or whatever it may be. Right. Um, and so, you know, all of these steps are important. We're seeing that this idea that this campaign is really coming into, uh, you know, the mainstream, but we're still yet to make a breakthrough. And we think that the momentum is going to continue building um, until that happens. So, we're, we're hopeful, we're excited, we're seeing more and more farmers come forward, we're seeing more folks from across the political spectrum say, hey, just let me let me fix my damn stuff. Um, yeah. And we think that that eventually is going to win, win out. So it's a matter of kind of where and when we're hoping, but it's important that we keep pushing until it does. It wasn't right to repair included in the Build Back Better bill. Isn't that part of the big overarching, you know, infrastructure, fix everything bill that uh, is languishing. <laughs> uh, I don't yeah, think it, may never I, get passed. I feel like I don't that think was it is. A, no, it was just in that executive order. Cause of course I, I was very yeah. well aware of that because, because that addressed the consolidation in the meatpacking industry, which is my other, you know, hobby horse. I talk right. a lot about meatpacking on this show. 
um, and, you know, problems with that in terms of the consolidation. Uh, so, yeah, I guess it was just part of that whole thing. So but you're um, right, right? We need to focus not just on building things, but maintaining them and repairing them when they break down. I think that's totally on point. Yes. And not, you know, like the whole, like whether it's your clothing or, I mean, it's just amazing. Everything is planned obsolescence. You know that when you buy a computer that within five years or six years, you'll be lucky if you can still download a, you know, platform onto it or something like that, because it's, it's, it, you know, it's programmed to not continue to advance at the same rate as, as technology does or as software does, right? I mean, I found that to be true. I had to get a new computer, not because my computer was broken, but because I could no longer use uh, the basic stuff, you know, Google Chrome wouldn't mm. load on my old computer. I mean, there was nothing wrong with it, you know, but I had to buy a new one. And it's the same with cell phones. And of course, we're all programmed, right? We want a new car every two years. We want a new cell phone every time a new one comes out. I mean, it's a really crazy mindset that we have been uh, endowed with by the powers behind marketing and advertising, I guess, and ultimately, you know, manufacturers. But I want to talk a little bit more about, you know, just sort of the broader um, issue of right to repair, because you alluded several times to like cell phones to, you know, your car, you can still have the right to repair your car. But there are some, some of the other things that people don't think about, like what, what are the other places where you, uh, in terms of, you know, pushing this campaign forward, what other products uh, have struck you as particularly egregious besides farm equipment, for example? Let's start with personal tech, right? You're talking about your computer that you had to replace that you didn't want to replace. And right. how we've adopted this kind of throwaway economy that's driven by premature obsolescence of, of our devices. Um, yeah. This is a huge part of our campaign and, and why we're pushing so hard for right to repair is that for one, right? Again, there's a consumer aspect. You don't want to have to buy a new thing and to repair it would, would be way cheaper. Um, right. In fact, we found that American households could save, you know, $330 a year by opting for repair rather than replacement, which comes to, $40 billion across the country. Um, wow. But there's also a really important environmental case. And, you know, yes. these devices are small, but they require a an incredible amount of material and emissions and, and you know, manufacturing and processing and uh, transportation and disposal. All these things take a huge toll on the planet. So it's actually, you know, we did a report a couple of years ago called The Fixes In that found that, um, if all Americans were able to hold on to their phones for, you know, on average a year longer. So instead of about two and a half years, more like three and a half years, um, yeah. that would have the emissions cutting equivalent of taking 636,000 cars off the road for a year. Wow. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's significant. It's, this is not, you know, not here to consumer shame, right? It's not our fault. No. That we're not fixing our stuff. It's just not easy. It's not affordable. It's not, really presented as an option in many right. of the places we turn when our uh, technology breaks down. So cell phones, laptops, that's an important part of this. Um, mm -hmm. Another important and, you know, kind of urgent area that this, that has come forward during the pandemic is, is medical equipment. So, mm. you know, in the same way that there's more software in tractors, there's more software in um, medical devices like ventilators, dialysis machines, uh, mm -hmm. CT scanners, those kind of things. And again, unfortunately, what we're seeing is manufacturers using it to, you know, put the vice on repair to 
take hospital employed technicians, uh, take their ability to fix equipment quickly and safely out of their hands. And so, you know, this was a problem. It's something that um, biomedical repair technicians, as they're called, or biomeds, uh, came forward in droves at the start of the pandemic, complaining that they had uh, equipment in their hospital that they couldn't fix because they didn't, you know, they weren't, quote unquote, authorized by the manufacturer. And so they were just sitting unusable um, as our hospitals were at risk of being overwhelmed. Um, Yes. And so that's a crazy thought. You know, one story that's particularly nuts and shows how kind of, you know, market control combined with repair restrictions can have uh, serious uh, effects is uh, there's a company that manufactures uh, that manufactures um, surgical robots, right? There are these robots that are supposed to be even more precise, more accurate, um, help make surgeries go better. Um, Mm -hmm. But they're the only one that is producing this kind of equipment. And in many cases, there are very few other options you can turn to. So hospitals are pretty much forced to contract with them to pay you know, exorbitantly high prices in order to fix them. Um, wow. But one hospital, or you know, at least as is the case that's presented in a, in a current lawsuit, um, one hospital was able to find an independent service organization or essentially a third party that could do the work and yep. didn't sign a, sign a maintenance contract with the manufacturer. And in response, what this what this uh, suit alleges is that the um, company shut down their surgical robot as a patient was lying on the table. And oh, they had to on. make an adjustment in real time to, you know, actually go in and do it themselves, which is just, you know, surgery is dangerous and scary. And we've got great doctors, but the last thing I want to do is be throwing them a curveball like that with somebody's life on the line. Absolutely. That's a that's a really a chilling story. It really is just outrageous. Well, this has been so interesting. I really what I want to ask you, but we do have to stop now. Um, but maybe you'll come back and talk about how did we get here? Yeah, how I'd love to talk happen? about it because it's 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 really? just nuts. Let's, let's make fix that our happen. Stuff. Yeah, let's fix our stuff. We'll talk. We'll you'll come back in a few weeks and we'll we'll take up. Uh, the cudgels again and talk about where, how did we get to this place and where, where, how are we going to solve this really? I mean, it because re- consumer awareness on this level, I think is really lacking. Um, you know, I've been following the right to repair for farm equipment, but I didn't really think until I read your report, how many other devices and parts of our daily lives as consumers are affected by this very same problem. So um, there's a lot to unpack there. And I really appreciate your time, Kevin. And thank you so much for doing the work. It's great that you're in there. Yeah. Well, so um, thanks for having me, Katie. Yeah, it was it was a joy. We'll send you the the thing, and uh, for now we'll say goodbye. But uh, I'll be in touch, and we'll schedule another little chitty chatty like this. Most informative. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you so much for listening today, people. Thanks to my sponsor for sponsoring the show, and we'll see you next week. What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, 
fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.